Hello. How's everyone today? Pretty good. Good. All right. Um, everything seems to be set up. Okay. Uh, check the sound here. It's not not too loud, right? More or less comfortable. Yeah, it sounds fine. Okay. Good. Um, so. I have been uh, going starting the papers already. Between the two classes, I think I've graded 10 or 11 of them um, in the last day. So uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. I think I graded more from this class than the, the last one, um, than, than the second one. So the, the grades are jumping up. I think it's probably everybody's improving by about a letter grade, I think. That's not, of course, true of every single person. And, of course, this is only you know, like one-fourth or one-third of the, the, the papers I've gotten to. Um, but it looks like uh, things are going uh, quite well so far. Um, yeah, and I'm starting to starting to put together the the final, which I think is on the, like the 18th and 19th of December. So we have one more assignment before then, which will, which will start to prep probably... Friday, we'll start to talk about that assignment and getting ready for that. Maybe give you guys three or four days of, of rest. Um, but that is where I am at with the papers. Um, let's see, what else we need to talk about? Oh, I'll post um, Under the Gaslight, which is next week's play. And then after that, we have a little bit of a break. Um, yeah, and so that is... That's what we are looking at. Uh, the The final is going to be composed of um, some kind of fact questions, kind of plot questions, which are basically reward points for having read the play uh, and plays, and then short answer sections. Um, and so, yes, those are the going to be the the two components to the final. And uh, yeah. So if you've if you've read the play, I'll try and make uh, some kind of obvious fact questions, reward points, so to speak. Okay, um, good, good, good. So any other questions before we get back to the prince? Um, is the final going to be like take home format, or is it going to be like within a certain time period? It's going to be within a certain time period. So I'll post it. And then you, everybody will have to kind of have to do it within um, a designated time, like 90 minutes or something like that. Or, or I'm sorry, it's not 90 minutes. It is th there is a time that the um, that has been assigned for the final, and so the time will be whatever that time is. It should be posted on um, on NetID, UConn NetID, that 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 program. Uh, so you could see the the time period for whatever it is and and we'll do it within there so it'll be posted you, you and then you'll just email it back to me okay good yukon <laughs> comes out as yukon in the turn on captions yukon like the territory anyway i find that amusing uh so let's get back into the uh the prince of hamburg um and I want to kind of, we're not going to get through the rest of the play, I don't think, but I do want to get through, you know, kind of the end of Act 1 
and through a lot of the um, the second third of this. So let's see if we could catch up where we were last time, and, and maybe you guys can help me remember. Um, where did we end last time? Did we end on talking about the glove? Yes. Okay. So we talked about the glove. Um, and did we talk about how the act ends? I think we had just finished act one. We just finished act one. Okay, good. So we're, we're getting into act two. Um, and we have in the beginning of act two, a bunch of people, including the prince meeting on a hill overlooking the, the battlefield. So what, what happens there? And not necessarily the, the every detail of the battle, because it's, uh, it's a little confusing. Um, well, let me, let me recast it anyway to help you guys out. So they go to the battle. They're watching the battle on, on the hill. Um, they're fighting the Swedes. Uh, it looks like um, one guy is, is kind of pushed down, one of the, the good guys, the Brandenburgers. Um, but another one comes around the edge, and it looks like the Swedes are being pushed back. They try to fire their guns, but it, it's not particularly effective. And it looks like the uh, the the Swedes are um, being routed, being pushed back. And then, of course, the Prince of Hamburg decides he, he has the cavalry. So the cavalry, they're the people who you know the last line of defense. They come in at the end there. Um, what does the Prince of Hamburg? look to do now that the Swedes are being pushed back so does he just stand there and um, doesn't he like go down with like the rest of his men, which is like kind of disobeying the orders that he was supposed to be given. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So he he's like, well, we got to go get them, and it's it's as as you said, Christina, uh, it, it's disobeying, right? Why is it disobeying? What was the order? Um, weren't they just supposed to like stay there, like retreat or pull back? Yeah, the exact, and that's fine. I mean, you know, it's it's like the, the idea is that he disobeys, right? The exact order isn't entirely um, important, but the idea is that um, he is supposed to wait until he gets the signal from the elector to go chase down the troops. The idea being that um, that they're going to break the bridge or bridges that the Swedes are supposed to be able to get across. And so they're trapped, and then after they're trapped, then the cavalry will come in. But he's so gung-ho about about fighting the Swedes that he needs to go down there. Uh, he wants to go down there right away. Um, and the idea being, yeah, as you said, Christina, he, he is violating the elector's order. Um, and what's part of the reason we get, or the impression we're given, as to why he isn't following the order? One part, he's kind of, he, you know, he's really excited about fighting. Um, and what's the other thing? 
he was kind of like in a daze because of like the whole dream thing that had happened to him the night before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole thing with the glove, right? He's kind of yeah. he's dreamy. Um, he's he's in a, a daze because of the dream, but during the dream he got the glove, and then he then he real. Right? I'm sorry. He's in love, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And it turns out that that's her her glove, or he falls in love with her because it's her glove. So we're ha- you know we have to deal now with. Um, with the fact that he is not really paying attention to the orders because he's sort of, um, his heart is so captured by Natalie that he, he can't, he can't really focus on what's being told to him. Uh, and, and we see this in the, in the court when he's receiving the orders. And then again on the hill when he asks what, you know, what the orders are. And again, he sort of drifts off. Um, and so, when he goes into battle, he they they try to tell him no, you can't go. He had to. They 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 keep trying to tell him what the orders are, and he keeps either just kind of daydreaming or he gets very excited and he tells the the group of people around him, um, whoever doesn't run into battle is a traitor and a coward. And so we have these two sides by the the end of this first scene in Act Two. We have these kind of two sides of Hamburg brought out. We have the dreamer and we have the warrior. So let's discuss that part of him or, or these parts of him or his personality as it's given. Um, what does this tell us about the type of leading man Hamburg is? Not really a good leader. Okay, why is that? Well, kind of like what I just was thinking, like what you just said, but um, it it seems like he doesn't really want to lead. He kind of just has his own. I don't really know. I just that's kind of what I thought. But okay, do you think he doesn't want to lead? I mean, there's a difference between not being a good leader and not wanting to lead. Yeah, that's true. And I'm not. I'm not correcting you, Martha. I'm, I'm. No, I'm really. I'm just not sure. I. I thought that it was like, oh, he doesn't really want to be a prince. He doesn't really want to lead because he's so in love with Natalie. But then, I mean, maybe he does, but he just. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just not very good at it. <laughs> okay. I yeah. can't really tell between the two. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it, it is worth saying that he does win the battle, right? He does crush them, um, even though he isn't following orders. But you, you, I think you have a good point, is that there is um, th- there is a problem with how he is his leading his troops. He is not really following, following the orders, and the issue of law seems to be pretty important for the elector, for having a law that everybody has to follow and obey. Uh, a, a universal law. So, uh, Humberg brushes up against that. But what kind of, based upon what we we've kind of briefly learned about um, this period in in drama and the type of you know sort of romantic figures that a lot of uh, German playwrights are throwing up on stage, um, how does Humberg fit into that tradition? As little as we know of it. 
So is Hamburg like a, a romantic leading man in this sort of post-enlightenment way? I'd say he's pretty romantic. Okay. What qualifies him as such? Um, he, like, is so distracted by Natalie and, like, her glove that he isn't even paying attention in life or death situations. <laughs> yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, he, like, I don't know, he seems pretty expressive of his love towards her, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He, he is... He is, um, he's not exactly reasoning out, uh, his decisions. He's, he is, um, very much invested in an image of himself, but he's, he's such a, a passionate and emotional guy that he can't even, he can't even deal with a committee meeting. He can't even deal with a meeting of the generals because he's just, he's, he's so in love. He's so, um, distracted by his dreams about the kind of the magic of the world blah 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 um so yeah i think he qualifies as romantic there uh how about him on the battlefield and when we see him again meet the elector after the the battle of um of Ferbelin, Ferbelin, i think is how you say it uh which is a real battle and very 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 important for like brandenburg's idea of itself but anyway um, after we see him coming back and meeting the Elector after that battle, him and his men come with the standards, the flags of the Swedes. And this is a really big deal to capture the other army's flag. It's, it's you know, it's a it's kind of like the equivalent of yelling scoreboard, you know. And, and you put it on the ground. He puts it on the ground before the Elector. Um, how does his conception of battle or, or fighting or warfare fit into this romantic figuration or cut against it? Is the question clear or is, am, is it being, am I being ambiguous again? I'm not sure if I 100% understand. Okay. Um, so he, I think we have an idea of, uh, he has an idea of battle, right? Of going into battle, um, that we get on that hillside before he, he charges in. He has an idea of battle that we get when he meets the elector again, holding the flags. Does everybody remember that scene? It's very brief, but it's him and like three guys and they each have a flag from the Swedish army. Um, and they, they place it before, you know, the feet of the elector. Um, how does he see himself in terms of war and battle and honoring the kind of the glory that those things inspire? Um, I'd say it's, like, pretty important to him. He was, like, a pretty proud, confident dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he does, he does accuse everyone, you know, who isn't going to follow him. And the reason uh, of being a traitor or a coward, right? Whoever doesn't follow me is a traitor or a coward. And the, the justification people give isn't, isn't anything like, well, we're, we, we just don't want to because we're scared or we don't want to because we don't want to honor, um, the you know, the, the electorship of Brandenburg, right? We don't want to honor our country. 
the reasons are you have to wait for the order. It's it's utterly sensible. Um, but his response is, no, you're all traitors and cowards, and we have to go now. And, and he goes in and um, wins, but also is breaking the law in so doing. Um, so we, we have this kind of, and we talked about this on Monday a little bit, right? The kind of the, the poet warrior, the sort of, we talked about Lord, we talked about this, right? Lord Byron and going to Greece. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. um, Lord Byron. Okay. And so the, the idea of Lord Byron as, as informing this, um, and Lord Byron, I think dies, I want to say 1814 or 1816, something like that a little later. Uh, but you know, Lord Byron is, you know, he thinks of himself as the greatest poet of his day. Uh, that, that's certainly debatable. Um, but he thinks of himself as a great poet anyway. And he goes off to Greece to fight for Greek independence. And, you know, he swims like the Greek channel to show how athletic he is. But there's this idea of him as going off to to battle for the good and just cause and to, you know, write poetry also. He's also going to write a lot of poetry. Um, and so Byron becomes this model of um, of the, the warrior poet. And maybe not just a model, but he's a version of it anyway. You know, Byron is the, the living version of the warrior poet, even though Byron, I believe, dies on the boat ride to Greece. So I don't think, I don't think he actually, you know, takes up arms. Um, and so we have that, right? And I think Homburg is in that model. He's he's the warrior poet. He's not writing poetry, but he's like he's poetical, right? The way he feels things, the way he expresses himself. Um, how do you think the play treats that personality type? Do you think it embraces it fully? Is critical of it? Rejects it entirely? of it just because at some points it kind of made Homburg seem like he was being like a little ridiculous mm-hmm. like the point when he was like begging Natalia to like save him and like I think it was like his aunt or something it's it's her aunt so the, the <laughs> we had some confusion I, I had some confusion also so I looked it up because they call each other all different types of things she is adopted by the elector and his wife. Oh, okay. So she was the niece of the elector, and she was orphaned. At one point she says, um, it, when they think the elector dies, remember there's this brief period of time where they think the elector died because they shot at his white horse, and it turns out somebody else was riding the horse. Um, at that point she says, I'll be twice orphaned. So you can infer that she was orphaned, and then she was adopted by her uncle and aunt. Um, and then this is further confused by the fact that the prince um, r- refers to the wife of the elector as mother. And I think that that's she's not literally his mother. Uh, I think it means like um, mother of our country, that type of thing. You know, like you would call the queen mother, queen mom. You know, she's the Elizabeth II is the mother of England. Uh, that type of thing. Um, okay, but anyway, 
sorry, it's a little sidetrack there. So you're saying critical of it because he is sort of ridiculous in the way he is um, is kind of propositioning Natalie to to get out of jail. What are um, so sure? So I think that that's also part of this production is that um, Frank Languella, who who is playing this role, is um, you know he's he is kind of very emotional and very soft and and like really dreamy, um, you know. And when he goes for something, he goes you know there is uh, there's no kind of hesitancy. He goes for it fully and and fully emotional. Um, how about in terms of the elector's response to to the prince? How do, well? Let's start. How does the elector respond to the prince and the prince's victory? Okay, he sentences him to death. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, he does. He sentences him to death. And what is his justification for this? Um, basically just because he disobeyed orders. Okay. Good. So let's... Actually, let's take a look at that scene. Let's take a look at the scene when they... When the prince and the elector meet again. Um, I'm going to try and play it. Uh, please let me know if it's not playing or if something's messed up because... We've not always had uh, a smooth sailing of it. If it doesn't work, we'll just talk about it. So give me one second to set this up. Okay, can everybody see the prince's slightly confused face? Yes. Okay. Whoever it was that led the cavalry charges, compelling the enemy to retreat before Colonel Hennings could destroy the bridges. He, I proclaim, incurs the penalty of death. He shall be court-martialed. So it was not the Prince of Hamburg who led the cavalry. No, sire, it was not. The cavalry officers told me before the battle began that the prince had had a fall and was gravely wounded. Even so, this has been a brilliant victory. But I must fight more battles than just this one. And I demand obedience to the law. Come, gentlemen. Let us go and pray for poor Froben, a true hero. Prince of Hamburg. Trucks, what is the meaning of this? I don't understand. How did you find your way here, Prince? Where have you come from? From Verberin, Your Highness. Where I bring you these trophies of victory. You were wounded, so I heard, and bravely too. Did you not say so, Berndruck? Not I. 
My horse fell with me before the fight began, but I received only the merest scratch. It was nothing, really. And it was you who led the cavalry? Of course. Am I the first to tell you? Are these trophies not sufficient proof, sire? Royce, remove his sword. He is under arrest. What? Culprits, my hearty greetings. Heaven, I can't what? believe what, what a harvest our victory has reaped. Ah. This flag belonged to the Swedish guard, did it not? To be sure it did. Read me the inscription. <clears throat> I think it's, um... Per Aspera of Esther, it says. To the stars through difficulties. That could not be said of the engagement at Fairbelline. Take all these flags and all the drums and standards and hang them from the pillars of the chapel. They will look well tomorrow at our victory thanksgiving. Prince, your sword, if you please. Off you come. Is this true? Am I awake? Am I alive? Do I still have my senses? Prince, I advise you to give me your sword and keep silent. Prisoner, that is so. Under close arrest. May one ask why? Not now. We warned you. You engaged the enemy too soon. The order was not to move from your position until oh, the signal. Help me. Help me, friends. I'm going mad. Quiet. Where was it? The troops of Brandenburg that were defeated, was it? That has nothing to do with it. Orders are to be obeyed. Ah! Don't worry. You won't lose your head. He'll probably release you in the morning. It seems my cousin Friedrich will play the part of Brutus and sees himself in some official portrait, sitting in a lofty seat wearing the imperial toga. The articles of war held in the magisterial hand while in the foreground lie the flags of Sweden. But he will not find in me a faithful son who will adore him even as the extra sense. I am a Brandenburger, heart and soul, generosity, forgiveness. These are the virtues I must bring to honor. And when he comes to me and tries to ape some antique Roman with a language dead as the ancient history in which his obstinacy lies involved, I fear for him only pity and dismay. Royce, take him to the headquarters at Fairbeline and convoke the military court that will pass judgment on him. Okay, so we had a few things going on there. Um, you know, it starts with him saying, like, Great Caesar, I will go to the stars. Um, he invokes that again with Brutus, that his cousin the Elector will play the part of, of Brutus, holding the declaration of war in one hand and the flags of freedom at his feet. Um, but... Taking a look at that, what are some of the threads here, right? We have um, Homburg, grand, romantic, head in the clouds. What is the elector's demand? Why is he insisting that Homburg, despite his his victory, an important victory, be arrested? Because um, they charged before they had time to knock the bridges down, and he hadn't given the orders yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. He he does that. We talked about that. But what what does he specifically say? What does the elector specifically say? Um, 
He says he demands obedience to the law. Right? And so that, you know, that is, um, that is the, the thing that despite the victory and despite the, the, the flags, the banners that have been captured, what's important to the elector is obedience to the law. And it appears a kind of universal or semi-universal, and we're dealing with, um, you know, uh, kind of elite people here, but uh, semi-universal um, regulation or use of the law. And so let's discuss that. Let's pull apart the kind of differences here between the the value sets and the the means of being in the world that the elector is versus the prince. So in this scene, and let's be really broad, what is kind of the elector standing in for? How is the elector, here, here's a better question. How is the elector a foil for the prince and the prince a foil for the elector? How is the prince a foil for the elector and the elector a foil for the prince? Compare them. So you want us to compare the elector and um, Homburg? Mm-hmm. Yes. Just like generally. Yeah, sure. And you and you could use that scene for for the main evidence. Okay. Um. Well, the like you can see later more in the play for Homburg, but like the law or whatever is like really important to their like whole belief because um like. At the end of the play, Homburg is like, okay, well, if, like, I actually disobeyed orders, then I should be punished. And then, like, the elector obviously believes this, too, even if it, like, cost them a victory. Like, he still won the battle, but he disobeyed, so he's, like, punishing him, mm-hmm. even if there was, like, a good outcome from it. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're both pretty like strong-willed, and like once they make a decision, then they're like gonna stick to that. Okay. And it's interesting you say that because both of them change their their minds on this issue, right? I mean, eventually the elector lets Homburg go, and Homburg, you know, thinks the elector is ridiculous, and then later he's willing to accept the the death sentence and even encourages it. I don't know, like, he was super against going to jail, and then by the end of it, after he changed his mind, he was like, no, like, I deserve this, and then um, the elector was like, you deserve to go to jail, and then once he changed his mind, he was like, no, like, you don't deserve this, so I <laughs> guess, like, 
they're able to change their mind, but once they set their beliefs on something, they like really strongly believe that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, once they change their mind, they really strongly, so like everybody's kind of changes their mind once or deliberates through and then comes to a, a different conclusion and that, that conclusion they stick to. Um, so, so I'm going to push you further, uh, Christina on this. Why does Hamburg decide or why, when your opinion, why does Hamburg make the decision to accept the death sentence? Um, because the elector ends up giving him kind of a choice. Like he's like, if you really believe that I sentenced you wrong, then like for sure I'll take away the death sentence. And then it makes him think about it. And he's like, well, maybe he was right to sentence me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. How does that fit into his sort of um, romantic notion of himself and of the, the situation he finds himself in? doing stuff for like the greater good I don't know if it's necessarily like the greater good but he's trying to set an example of like how things should be and like be noble mm-hmm. okay yeah so it, it's this idea of the greater good or, or I, I think the the second thing is the th- second thing you said this idea of being noble really resonated with me uh, with this play There's, you know this idea of um of the noble death, right? I think that uh, that's what Homburg Homburg is, is picturing. Um, you know, so good. I, I, that that's where I think. I think this this again. I think even kind of accepting the death sentence is part of this this image of himself, or the, this way he processes information is through um, the prince as a kind of you know romantic lead, that type of thing. Um, but we we still have with the elector, um, and maybe the elector goes back on this by forgiving Homburg. Um, but we still have this idea of a a kind of a natural law, right? There's this law, you you know, you have to obey it. Um, everybody has to obey it. And why does the elector later in this play decide that uh, that Homburg is not fully guilty or or at all guilty? of what had happened at uh, Ferberlin. Um, well, by the very end, he's like convinced by the other troops that it was kind of their fault because they messed with him when he was like dreaming or whatever, and then they like threw him off. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't like, prepared. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's this, it's not just, um, I really like Comberg. He's he's super great. Uh, you know, but there there is this kind of um, justification for letting him go. Uh, there's another reason why he, he might want Hamburg dead, but we'll, we'll get into that in a second. So there's this justification um, for letting him go. What is, um, getting back to the scene we just watched, when his sword is taken from him, when Hamburg's sword is taken from him, um, what is Homburg's response to that? What does he say?
wrong. He's definitely like not happy about it. Yeah, and he and he compares him to Brutus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why is that important? What does what does Brutus do? Um, I I remember reading this in high school, but I don't really remember it. He like stabs someone in the back or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he stabs Caesar in the back. Right. Yeah. So Brutus is Caesar's son. Is his bastard son. Um, and Shakespeare doesn't play... Shakespeare, well, Shakespeare writes the play about this. Uh, Shakespeare doesn't really say as much in the play. I think it's hinted at. But um, basically, Brutus led a, a collection of senators in a conspiracy to kill Caesar on the Senate floor because they thought Caesar was getting too much power. Um, okay, so there's this idea that Caesar Caesar's getting too much power, and so they have to kill him. And the prince is, is seeing what's happening to him like Brutus is, you know, is doing this. Um, why is that comparison important? Right. So, I mean, the scene starts with the prince literally comparing himself to Caesar, right? Like he's going going up into the stars like Caesar. So why is the why is the Caesar Brutus comparison important in understanding what type of person the prince is and and his intents? Um, I guess it kind of shows that he thinks he's like innocent and whatnot, and like whatever's happening to him isn't really fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he certainly doesn't. It's certainly not fair by his standard, right? Um, but in this. In this formulation, he's Caesar. So he is somebody who is launching into the stars. He's sort of, and you know, if we know, know this history, um, Caesar is sort of uh, uh, above the law, right? And eventually, you know, it seems like he, like Caesar crosses, uh, you know, the Rubicon with his soldiers, which you're not supposed to do. Um, because that's the kind of the river outside of Rome, and that means you now have military might in the city. Um, Caesar is sort of becoming an emperor. He's becoming the you know the great man in charge, um, and the the Senate's response to Caesar is, "Oh, you have too much power. You're gaining too much power." Hence, they they kill him. Um, how would you? How would the prince though? describe Caesar where you know it's it's clear the prince is on the Caesar side of the Caesar Brutus conflict why do you think that is So, what are maybe this is another? So, let me let me see if I could 
get at some of these ideas in a different way. Um, at the end of that scene, we see the, the prince say that he is a prince, a Brandenburger, which means he only honors virtue and justice. Right? Virtue and justice. Uh, the elector, on the other hand, says he demands obedience to the law. What is the difference between these two sentiments? like set in stone and um the whole virtue and justice thing can be like changed I guess so like you can't change the law but like in Homburg's opinion the law should be changed for him because his actions were noble mm -hmm. yeah I, I, I agree with you I think so I think it's it's this idea of Caesar versus Brutus right in his conception, Caesar is this guy who his glory and greatness um, puts him above the law, above everything. And he's do what Caesar does, he does with the glory of Rome, and therefore that's what's important. And, you know, and Homburg is taking that on, right? What he's doing, he's doing for Brandenburg. He is a Brandenburger, and all he does is honor virtue and justice which for him is, you know, sort of uh, self-defined, right? He's doing what he thinks is virtuous, what he thinks is just. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's a romantic notion of the individual within the state or within his country, right? He, he, you do, you battle and, and follow your heart and follow your emotions to, to victory or to... Um, you know, to uh, to the glory of your country, or you die trying, and you have a glorious death, right? a glorious victory, or a glorious death. What seems not particularly interesting to the prince is, you know, a law that everybody has to follow, because you know that's how natural rights work. You have a right. The law is predicated upon that, and, and everybody kind of has to follow that. Um, and your great glory in sailing over everything, blah, 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 is, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're in violation of the law. And so I think this point, which I, I said it's right after Act 1. It's actually right after the end of Act 1. This, this scene is actually occurring, excuse me, right before the end of Act 1. Um but I think it it sets up a sort of conflict that we see at the beginning of of Act One as a conflict between uh, a sort of reasoned or rational society and um, the kind of emotional life that the prince wants to follow. Right? He's this you know really emotional guy, and he wants to sort of follow the the his passions to the the extreme um you know and when he's in jail we could see this more right so right right at the beginning of act two he's in jail uh which is he's apparently there by his own because he he went there apparently nobody is holding him there because he goes he's like yeah you could just leave whenever you like and he's like oh good <laughs> and then he leaves but anyway so when he he's in jail and he's talking to um 
uh, Hulsenhorn, I think is the name of the character. They never ever say the name of this character in it, um, but it's his his uh, his friend. It might actually be Hennings, um, and he's speaking to him, and he says, you know, Hennings kind of says, "Aren't you concerned that you're going to be executed very very shortly?" And what is his response to that? Right, so he's in jail, and the you know his friends are visiting him and kind of trying you know you're, you're going to be killed lots of evidence you're going to be killed and what is the prince's initial response to that um, he was just like no that's not that's not happening yeah yeah and he says um and i wrote it down here do you think he will put down his favorite plant because it is too soon put out its buds and flowers Right. So it's so it's literally like I'm so beautiful in the way I do things in the world that no one could execute me. Right. <laughs> that is, um, you know, that that's the way the prince here here sees, you know, sees things. Um, it's I, I'm so wonderful. Um, I, I'm you know, my kind of romantic passion is so beautiful that nobody's going to kill me right it's almost like he's almost like he's figured himself as the hero of this story um and how do you think does the uh does this particular production not necessarily the play but does this particular production honor that honor this idea of the prince as imagining himself to be the hero of his own story Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think like the kind of dreamlike stuff too, right? I, you know, I think the um, you know, the fact that this this ends with a vision of victory that's clearly contextualized as a dream, right? The last scene, um, he's being carried off with the laurel reef, uh, and we can see three Hombergs, one who is sort of standing there and seeing a Homburg dreaming on a bench and then seeing another Homburg being carried off. Um, the whole thing seems kind of dreamlike. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a, a kind of a character, you know, a, a very poetic character, um, sort of coming into contact with a, kind of a state law, a kind of more rigid system. Um, but within the context of his dream and you know when a romantic character dreams about these types of things well what ends up happening he you know overcome he, he beats the swedes he's the greatest war hero ever he um he's saved at the last minute by an adoring public you know an adoring elector um even though it makes no political sense whatsoever uh, the elector gives Natalie to Hamburg in marriage, um, and then everybody carries off Hamburg as he wears a, a laurel wreath. Right? They they literally lift him onto their shoulders and carrying him off, and so the whole thing, I think, within this production, sort of becomes the fantasy of of the romantic, um, 
And so, a question I'll, I'll leave with you guys leave with you guys is: Is that fantasy criticized at all in this production? Okay, so maybe um, maybe we will pick that up for Friday. So let me put down, I'll actually write it down this time so I don't forget. Um, you know, so we'll pick up, so let's see if we can answer the question, is the fantasy of Homburg criticized in this production? Mm -hmm. Just because, like, those certain points where they they make him look kind of dumb, like, mm -hmm. kind of make fun of him throughout the play because of the way he's acting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we have uh, Christina says yes <laughs> that he's that the that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Yeah. That he that it's it's critical critical of this kind of maybe post-enlightenment romantic idea of the uh, of the poet warrior um, but let's because it is it is 11 now let's pick that up so let's stay in the mindset of um, a play in which we see kind of enlightenment ideas of, of state and statehood and romantic notions of the self in in conflict all right and we will um, We'll pick that up on Friday and talk more about that and carry it through to the end of the play. All right, and I will stay on this line um, if anybody else has any questions. Okay, if not, you're free to go. Thank you.